You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus, the only COVID-19 podcast hosted by two old schoolmates from Melbourne High School, as it turns out. Me, Rob Seltzer, and... Myself, Steve Ellen. G'day, Rob. How are you, man? Good, man. We should put a time and date stamp on the show because things change very quickly. It is currently Sunday, the 26th of April, and we're recording this at about midday. Now, Steve, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Spain, the only reason you're allowed out is if you're walking a pit. Have you heard about that? No, is that true? <laughs> this, is what been, this is what I've been reading. So a couple Quick, people, I need to go and buy a pet. <laughs> so a couple of people have sort of been quite creative with what they mean by uh, walking a pet. So one guy was nabbed walking his goldfish. Somebody <laughs> was, was walking a toy dog. Somebody else dressed, dressed up as a dinosaur and said they were taking their dinosaur for a walk. But it reminded me about five years ago, I had to take my pet fish called Fischl to the aquarium because it had some, I think, tail rot and they want to have a look at it. And uh, on the way there, I dropped in the newsagent to buy a newspaper. And the lady behind the desk sort of sees me walk in. I plonk my fish on the counter. And she goes, oh, did you just buy a fish? I said, no, no, I'm just taking him out for a walk. And she looks at me like, are you serious? And I thought, ah, I'm not the only person in the world now that takes my fish for a walk. Those guys in Spain do it all the time. So I thought of it first. Hey, um, did the fish rot clear up? Yeah, the fish is still alive, like we, five years later. Are you sure it was um, true fish rot? Because, you know, I tail reckon rot, you... Tail rot. Tail rot. I reckon you could be prone to uh, Munchausen's by proxy by pet. <laughs> you know, you're just taking your fish to the aquarium to get attention, to, to get notoriety. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Hey, now talking about notoriety and um, those kind of things, we're talking about rumours today. Um some of the rumours that are out there, but also the psychology behind rumours. You know, what is it that spreads them? Why do we want to believe them? So maybe we should get started. Good idea. Why don't we start with the first one, the, probably the biggest one that came around heaps, which is the virus was created in a lab. Yeah. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, this one, of course, those kind of conspiracy theories are going to be circulating, but there's been loads of evidence to the contrary. There was an open letter published in The Lancet in February uh, this year. The Lancet is one of the most prestigious medical journals. I mean, Steve and I would love to be published in The Lancet. Um, <laughs> where, and, in the, <laughs> and in The Lancet, 27 health experts from across the world condemn the conspiracy theories surrounding the, uh, the coronavirus. Basically, they analysed the genome, which is the genetic material inside the virus, and, and concluded overwhelmingly that it uh, originated in wildlife and uh, not in uh, a lab as such. The, the, the genome is about 96% the same as a bat virus, and that's where it is thought to originate. And perhaps it went through a secondary animal um, on the way to human beings. Um, and like, was the thought that it was created on purpose 
as a weapon or for some fine i've heard a couple i've heard one that it was a weapon yeah. i've heard another that was created so that china could take over the world economy yeah. um and i've heard that it was somehow created by bill gates and his organization yeah. to prove that we need to take infections more seriously very, very wacky very wacky rumors like if you were i mean just if you take that weaponized virus it, it is it is uh not if you're going to create a weaponized virus if you want to do that you're going to create a very very lethal virus and whilst it is lethal it does you know coronavirus does cause death it is certainly not as lethal as a lot of the other viruses out there and um not as transmissible as some of the other viruses out there so as a weaponized virus, it would very much fail. So I think we can put that rumor to rest. Yeah, that was probably the biggest and the first. The, the biggest category of rumors is obviously all the cures. <laughs> We've yeah. had so many, including just recently, the president of the United States raising the possibility of ingesting or injecting detergent oh, yeah, or yeah, somehow shining sun, sunlight or UV light down into your lungs. Very, you, very, very dangerous. Yeah. yeah, so the cure ones, and the cure ones have been tricky too because um, thrown in with all the wacky cures yeah. has been cures that, have um, some common sense to them, like yep. cures that show some early signs, but then they've been exaggerated. Chloroquine was the classic example of that. So tell us about chloroquine. So the chloroquine one came from, you know, some early, I forget where the early observations were now. I read about them about a month ago. Early observations of people who are on chloroquine might get a, um, have had a better response to COVID and some, I think some theoretical reasons why chloroquine might be effective against a virus. Um, and so people started saying, let's do studies and the studies popped up pretty quickly. There's, I know there's like, there's currently ongoing studies in Melbourne that have been going for a few weeks now and yeah. normally, and that's incredibly quick because sure. it normally takes about six months to get a study up and running, but they've, you know, fast track through ethics, got everyone involved, um, got cooperation. So we've got chloroquine being studied. But um, it sort of grew wings, again, when um, President Trump talked about it as a potential miracle cure. And he made comments along the lines of, what have you got to lose from taking it? Yeah. And the problem then became that people all over the world started buying up chloroquine for a start, which was problematic because there's a lot of people who actually need chloroquine for various oh, for various diseases like i think things like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis and yep, yeah yep. and so it became hard for them but also it was problematic because it does have side effects and then the other problem became that some people um misunderstood it and in particular there was and i shouldn't laugh but there was one guy in the united states who saw some poison that was used to clean fish tanks or something in his cupboard that had a very similar name to chloroquine mm. which he then subsequently swallowed and mm. unfortunately subsequently mm. died mm. Mm. so you know those sorts of you know I guess the issue there is when information gets misunderstood or exaggerated beyond the elements of truth, then it becomes problematic. And we'll be coming to this later about how do you sort out rumors from facts. And one of the things we will be talking about is how professionals, health professionals, deliver the message about certain facts. And you have to be so clear about certain things, don't you? But we'll oh, get yeah. to that in a minute. Well, and interestingly, just to, just yeah. to um, finish off that topic too, I might add that one of the first studies was published this week and the last week about chloroquine and yep. the early results from this study it wasn't a great study but the early results was chloroquine patients did worse not better worse oh, so now a lot of people are starting to people are looking at the early results of their studies to you know decide what needs to happen so it's still a potential treatment but it's thrown into a little bit of doubt yeah yeah um what about the rumor that the coronavirus is more deadly than other pathogens. I mean, 
it's it's so hard to incorporate all the statistics and all the numbers you hear because we're, we're you know we are thrown hundreds of numbers every day and you know we look at them because they're they're important to us so how do you figure out the 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 death rate from coronavirus and how do you compare it to other viruses or pathogens i reckon this is a really interesting one this rumor on account of the fact that um it was there were some people who are actually saying it, that it's an extremely yeah. deadly pathogen, but also it was more an impression given because the governments really, around the world, the governments wanted everyone to take it seriously. Yeah. So media, yeah. media reports were, there was all sort of, all sorts of overblown reports about how dangerous it was. And a lot of people early on just had the impression that if you got corona, you died. Yeah. Now, whereas in actual fact, the death rate, it's hard to determine because we, you know, the death rate is the number of deaths divided by the number of cases. And we don't know the number of cases for sure because testing's been very limited in the first few months. But yeah. the rough death rate, somewhere between about 2 and 5%, um, if you look at the world figures, which is actually not anywhere near as high as death rates of things like Ebola and stuff like that. Which is like 95% or something, isn't it? Yeah, some of those yeah. things can get up to massive rates. So it's not super deadly. The highest, in, if you, and it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it from age groups, you know, I don't think anyone under nine's died yet, um, but like over 85, it's about 15%. Uh, and it depends how you splice it. Males are twice as likely to die as females at about 4% instead of 2%. And some countries, the countries that haven't had their health systems overwhelmed, the death rates are very low. Like in Australia, our current death rate is about 1.1% and it'll probably get even lower once we figure out that there's a heck of a lot more cases than we actually know about. That's right, because at the moment, we're testing people who have got some symptoms. So there may be people out in the community who have no symptoms. And then when you put those, into, those people into the equation, the actual death rate will actually most likely turn out to be lower. Now, there have been some good rumors that have uh, been circulating on the internet about uh, COVID. Look, what, one of my favorite ones was that the dolphins and swans yeah. in the Venetian canals are now back because the canals are cleaner and there are no boats. And those kind of stories make everybody feel really, really good. But it wasn't the case, was it? No, unfortunately. Although I think there is a lot of good evidence that um, there's some, been some benefits to the environment. But this particular one uh, went viral, <laughs> excuse <laughs> the pun, um, so to speak, on account of the fact that it was such a nice story. And it turned out, it all came from a tweet from a, uh, a woman in New Delhi, actually. And uh, she tweeted something along the lines of, here's an unexpected side effect of the pandemic. The water throwing, flowing through the canals of Venice is clear for the first time in forever. The fish are visible, the swans have returned. And she threw in a a couple of photos just to illustrate it of uh, dolphins and swans but it turned out she'd actually grabbed a picture of the dolphins off the internet and they were from Italy but they're in Sardinia and the swans were from somewhere else near Venice where there is always swans regardless of whether there's a pandemic so it was a false rumor but it bought into everyone's um, sort of uh, looking for a good news story I guess and, and, I, and I think the funny the other funny thing about it was even when it was proved false, she didn't want to take it down because she thought, well, look, it's probably true and it's a good news story. Well, well they were Italian dolphins, Sardinia. <laughs> you know, they were Italian swans. I've got to say, I told friends and family about this. Yeah. That the, the uh, swans and dolphins weren't from Venice. And they said, we don't care. It's just a good story and we feel good about it anyway. Um, okay. So we move on to the psychology yeah. of all this, what it's all about. Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting. And I guess this is where having two psychiatrists may actually be quite useful in sort of teasing out why people spread rumours. Um, 
Look, the very first thing that is really conducive to generating rumours is a period of uncertainty. Because when there's uncertainty, people grapple looking for answers to make sense of it. Because sometimes even a, a wacky or foreign or kooky idea may seem more comforting than uncertainty itself. And I think and you that... Could, you could almost extend this to all of humankind, mankind, people kind, whatever you want to call it. You know, we have all of these belief systems that fill the gaps between areas where we know stuff and areas where we don't know stuff. And I don't want to be cynical here, but, you know, you could almost frame religion and various other beliefs as answers to the uncertainty of the big questions in this earth. It's very hard to live your whole life not knowing what the heck's going on. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uncertainty is, and I agree, the number one psychological prerequisite. What do you reckon? What else? What's your next one? Number two, we know that rumours are more likely to spread when they have personal meaning. So you could not think of a more... Uh, explicit uh, meaning than your health and the health of the people you care about. So, you know, when uh, rumours come out about COVID, of course people are going to have their ears pricked up to it because everybody's worried about COVID, about their kids, family, you know, parents, yourself getting the disease. So when a rumour has personal uh, meaning to yourself, that's when you're going to listen to it and when you're more likely to believe it and perhaps even spread it. Yeah, I mean, information at this stage is pretty much the only defence we have against it. We don't have any drugs. We don't have any vaccines. The only thing we have is the information that helps us avoid it and so-called flatten the curve, the information about how to stay at home, what not to do and stuff like that. So I agree with that. What about, what do you think of the role of anxiety? What do you think, you know, do rumours propagate more when people are anxious? Oh, absolutely. Look, there's, there's, there's been... A lot of talk about this. In fact, you and I were just talking about this before we uh, started the recording. That anxiety does tend to predispose people to spread rumours because you're, you know, you are kind of on edge and you want to uh, get information, spread information, and that raising the anxiety of the population, which has been raised because of COVID and because of the economy, people are more likely to spread rumours. Absolutely. What about? What about what, oh, sorry, you go. Oh, both of us. I was also <laughs> wondering about, so a lot of the rumours I've seen have come f- from people where it looks like they are trying to, in some way, shape or form, inflate their own reputation or abilities or something like that. Is that, yeah, what do you, yeah, what do you yeah, make of that? I think, yeah, I think, you know, spreading rumours does, I think it probably gives you a sense of agency over the information, a sense of control, and sometimes that may inflate your self-esteem. You feel that, hey... You know, uh, you know, 50 people have listened to me talking about X, Y, Z, or 10,000 people have listened to what I have to say about this. So I reckon there would be an element of that. And it may also be a way of improving social status as well when you actually do do that, when you actually do spread a rumour. The other, I think one of the other interesting points may be that people can actually believe the rumours that they spread. And th- this would come into your area, Steve, because you've done a work on on you know, uh, cognitive processing and schemas and such. Talk us through that, how you could actually believe a rumour 
that so, that's a little true. Yeah, so we all travel through life with various, you know, basically frameworks in our head to understand the world. And you might want to call them cognitive biases. There's all sorts of names for them. Mm. But they're frameworks. They're ways we look at the world. And we're not going to spread a rumour that we don't believe yeah. unless we think it's salacious, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so the rumours around things like COVID, if they buy into my belief system, I'm more likely to tell yeah. them. So say, for example, I believe that heat's really important to health and hot spa baths are really important and getting in the sunshine is yeah. really important. And then someone stands up and says, you know, um, we've seen that uh, COVID is more likely to die as a virus in higher temperatures. Well, I'm then more likely to go and tell people that we should be using heat as a treatment for uh, COVID because it, by, it, it fits into my cognitive schemes, my frameworks, my belief systems. And so rumours that we believe, we are more likely to spread. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you know one of the other... Uh I think issues that comes into play here is that we're living in this postmodern world and in the POMO world, multiple truths can be true. You know, there is no one universal truth and that's fine philosophically, I guess, but the problem is that science doesn't like that. You know, something either works or doesn't work. Uh, and so, but what happens if you're living in this sort of postmodern world? You can say, well, this may, this is my reality, and so I believe it's true. Therefore, it is true for me. Therefore, why shouldn't you allow me to believe this and allow other people to believe what I believe? And then it becomes very difficult sorting out these multiple different truths. I think I know where you're coming from, but I'm just glad for you that we're on Zoom because really when you said POMO is a shortage of short, short for post, what was it short for post? Postmodernism. It's right. the that there are multiple different. Well, yeah. I'm just glad we're on. I'm glad we're on Zoom because I wanted to slap you across the face for saying POMO. Oh, <laughs> that's the, that's <laughs> no. the okay term. POMO. I'm just not an intellectual. That's my problem. I'm anti-intellectual sometimes, but no, I get yeah. where you're coming from. I, th I guess I would call that there's no absolute source of truth here because we yes. don't know anything. And so this idea that you know every source of truth can be accepted as equal is just bullshit. The reality yeah. is where there is no source of truth, and so it's fertile grounds for. Um, for rumours. What about... This is a favourite one of yours. I know where you're going to go. You're going to go on the war on experts because you've, well, you've railed about this. Yeah, well, time. we have had a war of experts going for a long time, which again fits into your homo um, <laughs> system. But, you know, we do have this war on experts and we have a lot of pseudo experts, armchair experts, whatever you want to call them. And we have a lot of people who are dismissive of experts. It's especially grown from the climate science, um, antagonistic areas yep. of the climate yep. science debate, where people, you know, speak with disdain about various experts. Um, so, you know, I think some of the rumours just grow because people have no they no longer know what an expert is and they've no longer got and some people have no faith in experts in yeah. fact some people find experts to be uh um you know they purposely dis they, they will they will absolutely distrust something that supposedly comes from an expert because they've got this almost negative attitude towards experts hmm. i mean it seems crazy to us you know we're in the university system so it's hard for us to understand their side of the argument i guess but i i think some of it comes from the fact that experts haven't been the best communicators you know we don't always communicate well we sometimes over predict we yeah. sometimes do predict stuff that's for the benefit of our own of our personal we get some personal benefit out of it like for example we'll promote some research because we want funding to do more and so we exaggerate results so i think experts are partly to blame i'm not uh, saying they're without um without blame in this particular issue but i think that's part of the problem yeah yeah look and i think one of the other important 
factors to consider here is social media. And uh, you've said beautifully that social media is an accelerant to rumours. It really does add fuel to the fire. Sure, we had rumours since you know, time began, but you know, nothing fuels it like social media. And that's, I also, that's a big difference. Yeah. And I also think that we're still in the early stages of getting used to how social media works. It's only been around, you know, a decade or so in various forms. And so as a society, we're still coming to terms with it as a form of communication. You know, like early on, people would get offended all the time. And so then the use of emojis came in to express yeah. emotion as well, you know, along with yeah. these little yeah. short tweets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think we're getting a lot better, but it's still an accelerant. You can get an idea out there and you can reach you know, 10 million people in about five hours. Whereas, you know, you go back 20 years and if you had some wacky idea, you'd be lucky if a thousand people had heard it within a week. So, yeah, I mean, so it's an obvious accelerant. So maybe we should move on to, you know, do we, you know, what are the best ways to separate out the wheat from the chaff, separate out what's a rumour, what's true? You know, how do we go about doing it? Do you want to start the ball rolling? Yeah, well, I think one of the important things is to identify who is a genuine expert. Like if, if you hear something about a cure or about uh, something about the virus. You've got to figure out who's telling you this. First of all, are they qualified? Mm -hmm. And qualified would usually mean to me that they're associated with some institution of repute, like a university or a hospital or something like that. They're just not somebody, you know, who's got their own kind of, uh, they've, they've, they've been pulled off the street to comment. So qualified is something that I'd really want to know. And they've got to be qualified in the right area. You know, because exactly. don't talk to me about epidemiology unless you've got some sort of public health epidemiology degree. Even if you're a doctor, you might think you know epidemiology, but, you, you know, you haven't really got the, you know, you want the people with actual qualifications in the actual area they're talking about. Yeah. And look, the other thing too is, are they accepted by their peers? And you can usually tell whether somebody has got peer acceptance by the number of uh, articles they published, because uh, articles are always peer reviewed pretty much. So when they go into a medical journal or a science journal, a group of scientists looks over the, the paper and that's called peer review. Now, if they then accept the paper, then it gets published. So if you've been peer reviewed a lot, that means that you're, you're accepted by your peers. And it's important to point out that that acceptance is not just social acceptance. You're not just being accepted because you've been there for a long time. No. It's you're accepted in that other people who know the science have analyzed your numbers, your data, your methodology and said, yep. They've got all of the technical aspects of the science, right? I agree. Super important. What about the pub test? Sometimes, so, you know, this is probably moving a little bit away from experts, but I think you can also apply the pub test, even though it's a hackney term and it's been overused by politicians. But sometimes the stories are just too good to be true. Or I, they've just... I love that. I love that. Because if it's too good to be true, it usually is. That's my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It usually is. You mean it's not true? It's not true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And some of them just have clickbait written all over them. Some of them you look at and you can see they're clearly just written as a headline to get people to click on it, um, which probably brings us on to the next important thing, which, which is, is self-interest. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, when there's, you know, the number of times I hear people, you know, I own all the shares in, uh, uh, this isn't true, but I own all the shares <laughs> in chloroquine and I think chloroquine could be you know, something good. So now, obviously no one owns all the shares in chloroquine, but nevertheless, you've got to apply that to any story. Is the person promoting it getting some benefit? And that's why in medical research papers, or in fact, all research papers, there is a strong declaration of interest 
paragraph where all the authors declare if they have any interest, as in if they own shares, if, they've, if they're directors of a company or something like that. Whereas in social media, you don't necessarily get that declaration of interest or conflict of interest declaration. It can be harder, of course, because when you move out of sort of the expert scientific field and you're talking about politicians, it's yeah. sometimes hard to know. Um, you know, what their self-interest is, because sometimes their self-interest is community interest. You know, they might yeah. be making statements because they want everyone to believe it and to get yeah. the community on board and follow their sorts of stuff. So stuff how, how can we help? What can we do as, you know, the average punter? What can we do to help with this spread of information and listening to information and controlling rumours? I think the first thing is you shouldn't post stuff that you haven't checked out. It's so easy just to forward stuff on, just to click and send. But really, just before you do that, think before you click. Are you sending on stuff which is unverified? You're just sending on because it's interesting, but you're not quite sure. Think before you send stuff on and check it out. And I think that's especially important for the negative stories because yeah. we, I think we all bear a responsibility to try and manage our anxiety as a community. You know, we're going through something really, really, really terrible in many, many ways. And so we have to um, be honest with the information. That's true. But we also don't want to propagate the stories that are incredibly negative when we don't know if they're true because all we're going to do is scare people even more and there's consequences of the fear. Um, what about the importance of just thinking, look, I'm trying to get onto this issue of um, we have to somehow learn better skills for sorting out what's true and what's not true. And that's a hard one. We've just gone through the basics, but it's not easy for all of us to research because, you know, a lot of people aren't trained in research. You know, how do we get better at quickly answering that question? I'm going to answer my own question now. I was going to say, be aware of the various sites that help you pick up myths and rumours. Yeah, I reckon in future in the future there will be classes taught at primary school and at secondary school, not university, even sort of in, in secondary school, to help kids think about these kind of issues because it's so important and can be so detrimental too. So yeah, think about it before you send it on. Do experts need to lift their game too? Oh, yeah, look, uh, I know. I mean, as we've said before in other podcasts, you and I know some of the smartest people on the planet. And they're in, some of them are just mind-blowingly brilliant. However, they're not always the best communicators because I True. think, you know, being really smart, you can kind of think that your audience is really smart <laughs> and that kind of loses you and me. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I think not, not always, but oftentimes experts don't give really, 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 really clear messages and that can cause conflicting messages and so forth. I think, look, I think in Australia we've done incredibly well with our, with our messaging and the experts' messaging, but that's not always the case, uh, especially overseas. Yeah, I agree. What about moving away from the experts then? Should the social media companies lift their game? Yeah, and so I know that WhatsApp has tried to um, look at this. And what they've done now is if uh, you get a frequently forwarded message, that is a message that's been forwarded from five people removed from more than five times, um, it has little double arrows, I've noticed that. So you know it doesn't originate from a close contact. Also, uh, WhatsApp has said that they will only allow those types of messages to be sent to, to by users to one chat at a time rather than a whole lot of chats. So it slows down the viral spread. So I think the companies are coming to help out here with technology. 
I think the, you know, more traditional media companies are helping out too. I notice ABC, BBC, a lot of the big media organisations have a fact-checking service. And I believe Facebook is now lifting their game too and trying to, they're actively removing fake stories related to COVID, recognising the dangers. So it's all pretty good. I think we're getting there, but it's, you know, it's a slow process. There's still weird stories coming out every day. I guess the, you know, take-home messages is that bad information is dangerous. It can actually kill people. It can increase the amount of anxiety in the community. It can misdirect the way people behave and and, uh, it can make people not necessarily work as a team and follow all the rules around social distancing, et cetera. And at the bottom line is it just causes unnecessary anxiety a lot of the time. Yeah. So true. So that was Stephen Robb's tips for rumours and how to combat them. You've been listening to Shrink the Virus, a podcast produced by 3RRR. So don't forget to tell your friends, subscribe to it if you like it, and please uh, rate us too. Please rate us. Don't forget we have a Facebook page and Instagram pages that you can find by just searching Shrink the Virus. And you can also email us at shrinkthevirus.com at shrinkthevirus at gmail.com and we'd love to hear your feedback or your ideas on what we should cover or guests we should get. And Steve's also got his own website because he's really important. (laughs) His website is steveellen.com. That's correct, but I wasn't going to mention it this week. I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd pushed it too hard before. <laughs> no. What about the thank yous? Let's thank Triple R. Um, Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael, they've um, helped us get this whole podcast off the ground and they're uh, obviously helping promote it through 3RRR R, and it's a 3RRR R production. Um, so thanks everyone for listening and we will see you very shortly. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.